Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. I'm Ben Prosser, the Managing Partner of Global Council. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. We have a fantastic panel of people joining us. Uh, we have uh, Chris Weaver, the um, uh, doyen of the analyst community in Moscow mm. and beyond, who is uh, known now for his role at Macro Advisory, where he guides clients on um, a, a major geopolitical, economic uh, uh, and financial uh, events in, uh, in Russia and the rest of Eurasia, and had a fascinating career at uh, previously at Sparebank, uh, Ural Sib, uh, and Alpha Bank uh, and others. He's joining us today from uh, Moscow, and it's a great privilege, Chris, to have you with us. We have another Thank colleague, uh, Rebecca Park, our Senior Practice Lead for Financial Services, who has uh, had a previous career as both a lawyer and also working within UK Finance, so the main trade association for the banking industry uh, in Britain. And she has had uh, a great deal of experience of guiding uh, clients through the new sanctions regime, which has emerged over the course of the last uh, uh, a decade in relation to Russia. So, Chris, um, let's start with just how you see things from the course of the last 24 hours in Russia. There's been a uh, major announcement on the way in which the insurance industry is going to be able to write or, or indeed not write uh, insurance policies for uh, assets for some kind of Russian uh, angle. Uh, and you've seen ongoing concerns around the collapse of the, the ruble, the rise of in, in, interest rates and so on. So just give us a, a snapshot as where you see things and its impact on the financial community in the course of the last 24 hours. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, well, obviously, the situation continues to change, to deteriorate, I guess, because every, every you know, a couple of hours, we're hearing about new either formal restrictions, uh, and now, of course, the, the uh, voluntarily Voluntary restrictions that are, um, uh, companies and agencies are putting in against uh, against Russia, um, and then you know first of all it's fair to say that this time it definitely feels different. This is a, kind of the fourth time in the last twenty four years we have had a ruble collapse, we have had a financial uh, kind of market um, uh, disruption, but the, the, clearly the cause of this one, the war in Ukraine, is very different. So therefore, it's harder to see what's going to. Uh, happen next, how it's going to to evolve. It's clearly not going to be just by central bank uh, and, and government actions. Um, all the second, the other point to make is that it really does feel different this time. Uh, the impact of sanctions that you talked about is now starting to be understood by people and starting to be felt by people and by business in Russia to a much greater extent than any previous sanctions. Um, I think it's fair to say early last week when when sanctions first started, it was met by a kind of a shrug of the shoulder. In Moscow, people thought, oh, here's more sanctions. We're used to that. It's only going to hit oligarchs. It's only going to hit people in government. But I think in the last few days, and certainly coming into the weekends, there has been a, a significant realization by the general population that this is something that's going to really massively disrupt their lives. So people are, are talking about the air transport disruption. How do you get in and out of Russia? Uh, you know, they, uh, you'll have seen pictures, perhaps, of, of, of the queues of people, the underground metro, because, of course, everybody has been used to using things, uh, systems like Apple Pay, Google Pay, Visa-based, MasterCard-based systems now simply don't work in, in Russia. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the uh, the ruble collapse and the prospect for higher inflation. So all of that, of course, extremely negative. And companies also starting to talk about the possibility of uh, slower working, uh, you know, part-time working, or even shutting down because they're not able to get parts, some of which have been sanctioned, such as like uh, uh, chips or, or, or technology, and others they can't get because of the voluntary actions by, by say, cargo transportation companies. They say they're not going to bring goods into, in and out of Russia other than basic medicines or food. So this one really is different, and it's really hit home very quickly over the last four or five days, uh, and it's beginning to kind of change the mood in, in Moscow to an extent I haven't seen before. But uh, you know, let me just separate, uh, make two quick points. First of all, the, the, the idea that the Russian financial system is going into meltdown is not correct. Uh, and the reason for that is the ruble, of course, is, is, has, uh, has fallen by about 30% over the last week or so. And it's down 60% since this conflict first emerged, uh, like October 26th or October 27th last year. The ruble is 60% lower since then. And the stock market, of course, has completely collapsed. The local exchanges are still closed. 
uh, MySex did not open this week. Uh, unlikely it'll open tomorrow. And remember, it's a four-day weekend in Russia. Monday and Tuesday are closed for International Women's Day. So the earliest it'll open will be next Wednesday. Um, and, but it, it's not a financial uh, crisis in that sense because the central bank has made a lot of changes and has strengthened the financial system through a series of measures over the last seven years since sanctions first started. Now, clearly not enough to withstand what we're now seeing, but it has mitigated uh, the, the damage. So if, if these, the scale of these sanctions had hit you know, back in 2014, then you would be talking about a financial crisis as well as an economic crisis. But right now, the system is relatively stable. The queues you see at ATMs, people are looking for foreign currency. There's plenty of rubles in the system. Banks are opening. And then the banks are, are certainly a lot stronger than they were maybe 10 years ago because the central bank has really improved regulation, improved capital the controls, uh, et cetera, and it's forced the system to be a lot stronger. Also, the central bank itself, even though it's now sanctioned in the West, has made some provision, again, not enough, but some provision. They don't hold any dollars, for example, right now. Uh, they have a significant uh, percentage in, in Chinese won, uh, and, uh, and we don't know because they're not telling us, but it is believed and, and it's understood that the central bank's assets are now more widely dispersed globally. In other words, they're not all in, in Europe or the US subject to sanctions, but they can be available perhaps in some Asian banks, Middle Eastern banks. Uh, there's a little bit more flexibility there. And then critically, of course, the West, their nations have not put all Russian banks onto the SWIFT prohibition system. They have left some banks, Gazprom Bank and Sparebank in particular, are still able to use SWIFT, which means therefore that Russia can continue to export products and be paid for it. Uh, so gas exports or, or other materials, uh, they can be paid for that using the, the banks that are still allowed. That can go into the central bank system, presumably using a mechanism, uh, perhaps using Chinese banks and then back to, to Russia that way. Um, and that therefore allows the, the government to have cash flow, to have revenue coming into the budget, which means that they've got money to uh, subsidize perhaps uh, some industries to keep employment, they can subsidize people, they can pay pensions. Clearly, they're going to cut all non-essential spending. So national projects, infrastructure projects will all, of course, be suspended, we assume. But there is enough money, provided, provided there's at least one big Russian bank still able to use SWIFT, then that cash flow lifeline remains, and therefore it can keep the financial side of, of the economy at least stable. It also means that the government can service its external debt, and companies can, can also service their debt. There is a ban on the transfer of FX. So, for example, I cannot transfer any FX out, uh, or companies can't pay equity dividends or can't pay non-essential. But if they have to service an external debt, they can get permission of the central bank and transfer money to do that. The economic side is different. Clearly, the economy is either heading for negligible growth if not a recession. And the reason why it's not going to be worse, as you might imagine, is because of the structure of the economy. Um, you know, as we've always long complained that the state is too dominant in the Russian economy. economy. It, it accounts for about 60% of GDP, SMEs only about 25%. But in periods of crisis, that actually keeps you stable at a macro level, because the state will subsidize the big state companies, the big exporters. The SME sector will get destroyed, as it did during COVID. Um, so, you know, the economy in, in Russia fell by 3% in 2020. But if you were to look at SME, SMEs and entrepreneurs, it was probably more like 15% down. I expect the same again. So there will definitely be, at best, a stagnant economy, maybe a mild recession, but nothing too bad. The financial system uh, will, will certainly remain stable, provided that SWIFT lifeline remains open. Uh, the real impact will likely be, be hit by small businesses, entrepreneurs, and now for the first time by people themselves and the way they live and their expectations. And again, I know this is a cliche we've seen everywhere, uncharted territory all over the place. Yeah, right, Chris, thank you. There's a huge amount to get through in that. And thank you, that's a fantastic introduction. Uh, I'm going to come back to you on a whole bunch of points uh, uh, in a moment. If people have questions and want to, well, want to put them into the chat, they're very welcome to do so, and I'll come to those later on. But Becca, let's turn to you. You're there in the city of London. Let's hear from you the kind of mirror image of the picture that Chris describes when looking at the banking sector. Describe us how you see um, uh, banks, insurers, asset managers looking at um, uh, the challenges over the course of next month in, in, in responding to the problems 
that Chris describes? Um, so, I mean, I think in terms of how um, the financial services industry is responding across uh, the London, but also globally, I think there are probably four elements that we need to sort of think about here. One is yeah, anticipating and understanding the pace and scale of sanctions and how they're being implemented, and actually that they're being implemented in many respects in, in a very peaceful manner at pace. And I think one of the things that is sort of being misunderstood at the moment is the lag that exists between the moment the sanction is announced, the political implications of that sanction being announced and kind of the reaction we're seeing in the markets, and the gap before that sanction is then implemented. And I think this is causing us sort of a lot of tension and challenge. So we're getting these high-level political statements from foreign secretaries, from ministers, from governments about intentions to shut down access to SWIFT or to kind of uh, prevent clearing of a foreign exchange or access for the Russian central bank to, to Western funds. And then we have to wait for the implementation of that. So I think in the first instance, there's been a huge challenge for, for banks, asset managers to kind of understand what those broad political sweeping statements mean and then how it's going to implement it in general. So SWIFT being the most obvious example, as Chris touched on, the way in which the SWIFT implementation has worked is to kind of leave a number of critical Russian banks online, but also we had to wait for it, an EU regulation to be passed for those seven banks that are being removed from SWIFT to be taken down over the next 10 days. And you know, there's been a lot of negotiation and discussion behind the scenes to understand how that takedown will happen. So we're, at the moment, we're following the Iranian model, which is bank by bank, individual banks will be designated and removed. And I think it is worth noting, once you're off SWIFT, you're off SWIFT globally, it's simply that that bank recipient will no longer exist as a message recipient. So um, it's not that you know this is just a US, EU, UK intervention. It, it truly is global when it happens, but it is happening in a very deliberate, moderated manner to enable the implementation of these changes to work effectively and, and not cause full-scale market disruption. And I think the second thing we're seeing sort of is really a fear of non-compliance. So the, this is a, the, the broad brush of the sanctions implementation. We see firms operating so that they are looking to respond to the, the, the politics of the situation and the politics of the announcements. And a sense that actually in looking at implementing this, you've got to look at the direct entities that are being assessed, but then the broader entities and the longer term impacts that might have on any secondary sanctions implementation as firms look through into the wider supply chain. And I think there is a real sense right now that this shouldn't be about sort of very deliberate legalistic implementation, but actually firms are proactively seeking to anticipate what might come next, but also ensure that they are implementing it to the full. So even before the first sanctions were announced, we saw uh, limited access to um, bond markets and um, uh, equities markets for Russian finances because there was a sense that actually if these sanctions come, they're going to take two to three days to implement and we can't risk having trades mid-clearance. And I think we're going to see more of that over the coming days, weeks and months, which is a, a sense of firms trying to understand where the direction of travel might be and almost prepare for that um, while they wait for a clear sort of sense of, of the legalistic implementation and changes um, but also what I think we're seeing kind of from a sector, a sector basis, we've, we've touched on some of the banking in, in detail already, but I think what we saw from the UK today on the insurance side is actually a really interesting critical development. So we saw the, the UK government announced this morning the desire to um, prevent Russian aviation and space industry companies from accessing British insurance and crucially reinsurance markets. Um, and that is a sort of not necessarily a significant intervention in terms of scale for Russian business for Lloyds of London, but in terms of the impact it will have for uh, Russian corporates captured themselves. You know, Lloyds of London is hugely um, influential in both the aviation and space markets. You know, we saw the UK pick that designation very deliberately because of, of London's dominance here. But also, crucially, the UK government was very clear in that statement, there is more to come. We're starting with these two designations in insurance, and actually they're going to have to pass legislation to do it. So again, we're seeing that implementation lag, but there will be more coming and there will be more rolling. And I think that intervention today is a further sign of how we're going to see this operating. Firms are struggling to keep pace to some degree, not, not necessarily the large global corporates, but smaller financial firms with the pace of implementation, the scale of implementation, you know, do they have the right software to do the transaction monitoring to identify these risks, but also do they have enough personnel to meet their compliance needs? I think that's going to be a real focus, but also the, the impact of these as we start to broaden out beyond the, the banking entities into insurance. And, you know, we're seeing it happen in asset management as well. So within the asset management market, in addition to the sanctions compliance, we're seeing the exclusion of Russian stocks and assets from certain funds for ethical reasons. 
that's going beyond the sanctions implementation. We're seeing suspension of freezers from fund redemptions to assets that are you know, have significant exposure in these markets. But also we've seen a number of funds admit that they are refusing to value their funds right now while the Moscow exchange isn't open and avoiding kind of hitting certain trigger points because they're not going forward with those valuations. And I think the long, um, over the next few weeks, we'll start to get a sense of what some of these longer term trends um, might mean in, that, in those elements. But I think at the end of the day, the behaviour we're seeing from businesses, they're looking at these sanctions announcements and they've got to consider two ends of the trade, one of which is what is the consequence of implementing this sanction in full and going beyond it from their exposure to Russia and, and the countermeasures they may experience? But ultimately, they're also looking at the US and the UK and determining, well, actually, what is the risk of me getting this wrong? There is the very strict uh, civil liability risk and, and the risk of fines, but ultimately, sanctions evasion is a criminal offence. And corporates are looking at the risk of that criminal breach and the reputational risk of not being deemed to be proactive and going far enough. And I think there's a sense right now that for large corporates, were they to put a foot wrong, they would find themselves being held up very publicly as an example of someone that hasn't got on board with the, the diplomatic agenda and isn't sort of seeking to sort of uh, race to the front in terms of how these are being implemented. And I think corporates, particularly banks and firms right now, are very cognizant of that reputation and how they approach it. So th- thanks, Beth. You've given us a very good counterpoint there to... Um to Chris's introduction. Chris, let's look at um, the points that Becca was describing about how severe and how restrictive the measures are going to become. You're sitting there in Moscow, 7.15 in the evening. It's um, it's clear from here sitting in London that the information war, when it's been aimed at uh, Russian citizens, was designed to, to uh, elicit a particular kind of reaction and has clearly been quite successful in that extent. Can you draw comparisons or can you give us a paint a picture of how the messaging around the impact of the uh, of, of, of the war on Russian businesses has, ha- has been communicated and the extreme set of outcomes that Becca describes, are they well understood by business leaders in Russia? And I don't mean oligarchs, I mean the people who are running these companies on a daily basis and having to deal with the problems that are presented to them. Yeah, look, the short answer is I think they do understand uh, these problems and to some extent they've been dealing with them at different levels on an incremental basis since 2014 because we first had sanctions in the spring of 14, then they've been strengthened at regular intervals, expanded at regular intervals, you know, since then. So so it has become kind of a fact of business life, a fact of, you know, transactions, particularly if you're engaged in any international transactions, you uh, sanctions and being wary of sanctions and, and investigating what the sanctions impact on any of that business might be is something that companies, all companies now do as a matter of routine. And, and it's something that we do in our business as well. It's kind of due, due diligence where on the one hand you can look up to see is, an individual or a company or anything, you know, sanctioned. But of course, uh, you know, we, we have actually seen this, uh, what Rebecca referred to, whereas everybody has been super careful beyond the letter of the law, because nobody wants to be accused of any form of, you know, kind of sanctions evasion or sanction avoid, avoidance in any way. So the due diligence that we do uh, for, for Western clients or for multinational clients is to help them understand how close not only is that individual or company on the sanctions list, but how close are they to it and, and might they be, you know, in what circumstance could they be or is there any risk whatsoever? And companies therefore are avoiding not just those that are sanctioned, but those who are in danger of being sanctioned. Uh, so we've seen that for a while. And, and then this, of course, will even make it more so. Uh, you know, it'll expand the, the number of companies who are who are more wary, but it is something that everybody is certainly very aware of for some time, and it clearly has impacted business. And, you know, there's lots of, again, what we see is is that most of the multinational companies and strategic investors in Russia today, or let's say last week or a couple of weeks ago, were those who've been there for the last seven or eight years. It's been very, very few companies have come in fresh, in, into Russia, and part of that reason is because they're simply concerned about you know this huge morass of sanctions, and you know I, I guess a lot of people who don't need to be in Russia simply adopt the principle of if we don't need to, we're not, because we don't understand or or it's too complicated or it might all change tomorrow, 
and uh, and that's you know we've we've seen that and it's it, it has been a huge uh, impediment to kind of you know economic development and business development in Russia really f- almost for the last seven years. Most of the investment we've seen in that period it really has come for direct from the government. The government has been very fortunate in that last sort of six or seven year period in that commodity prices have generally, with the exception of COVID a year, commodity prices have generally been quite high uh, and, of course, have, uh, have allowed the government to considerably strengthen its financial position. That's something I should have mentioned earlier. Russia has never been in a strong financial position as it, as it has started this year in terms of uh, financial reserves in the welfare fund, as well as the central banks, diversified, but also very low debt, only 18% uh, to GDP, uh, and only about $50 billion of total external debt for the state sovereign debt. Uh, And as it stands today, uh, even with the SWIFT restrictions, Russia is running a current account surplus of about $25 billion per month. So, you know, in, in that sense, therefore, the state really has become a lot more dominant and the state has become, you know, much more critical in the economy in that seven-year period and has been fortunate with the commodity environment that it can afford it uh, to, to do that. But, you know, clearly that that really is just, uh, it, it's, it's a stagnant economy and that it's supported, it's safe, but it isn't going anywhere. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a, a former uh, deputy minister, quite an outspoken deputy minister, uh, speaking at one of our events. And he started off saying, you know, the best thing about Russia today is it's stable. And then after a small pause, he said, the worst thing about Russia today is it's stable. And again, he elaborated on exactly that point, that the state has now become dominant because private investment has become so small and and difficult. to and, And sanctions is, sorry, getting back to the point. Sanctions and concern about sanctions, uncertainty, and nobody wanting to be seen in any way to be cute or trying to avoid sanctions or, or skirt sanctions. Uh, you know, absolutely, I've not seen anybody, nobody's ever asked us, how can we get around sanctions and do business? We've never been asked that question uh, because nobody wants to do it. I think it was the huge fans of, uh, fines applied to the West European banks for busting Iranian sanctions that really changed the mindset well before the Russian sanctions started. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Let's, let's, look, let's ask you both about countermeasures coming from um, uh, uh, Russia. I, Chris, where, where do you see the countermeasures being introduced? And we have uh, people on the call from pharmaceutical firms, from technology firms, food businesses, all of whom will be interested in that. And then, Becca, I'll turn to you and see what are the risks that are uh, that are presented to corporates by by um, uh, by not following these countermeasures? But Chris, if you could just kick off with where where you see Russian countermeasures going beyond those which have already been introduced? Yeah, you know that's a difficult question because um, okay, I, I know today you, you, it, it's very difficult to consider the Russian government with any sort of rational kind of behavior simply because of what's happened. So we have to bear that in mind, and and, and you know, frankly, we've been lied to by the most senior people in the whole country about what their intentions were compared to their actions. So it's really difficult, therefore, to say, you know, to, 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 to formulate, um, you know, a, a scenario, a plausible scenario, because you, you simply don't know what they're thinking and what they say may not be the truth. But what we can say is that for the last seven years, they have adopted a mantra which they have abided by, which is that they will try to keep good business away from bad politics and uh, really, with the exception of the food import ban, which was put in place in August 14, there have been very, relatively few kind of countermeasures that have uh, that have affected foreign business. We, you mentioned pharmaceuticals. That's one where, of course, sorry, I should say, instead they have emphasized localization. And I guess that's a form of pressure rather than sanctions. So they really want companies that can, they believe, can make their products in Russia to do so. Uh, and pharmaceutical is one one that has come under that pressure, and uh, you know we've had the three is a crowd rule, where if you're tendering for uh, to sell your product to the health service, and there are two you know perfectly acceptable locally produced products, then the third one, the foreign one, will be excluded from the tender process, and that therefore forces the pharmaceutical company at least to consider setting up an assembly plant or a manufacturing plant in Russia. And, and other areas in, in data management, that there, there has been, uh, again, not sanctions, but localization pressure. So companies that companies have to keep their data in, in, in available storage in Russia, I mean, available for scrutiny. And if they don't, then they're not allowed to operate in Russia. 
Uh, more recently, we had a regulation saying that any of the social media companies that have got a, a daily kind of audience of 500,000 or more have to have a full legal operation in Russia that can't service from outside. That means they have to have people on the ground, legal entities, et cetera, therefore, you know, that they're more part of that. So it's been those sort of soft measures, or sorry, well, hard in some cases, but not strictly sanctions, but a great deal of regulatory pressure applied to companies to, uh, you know, to, 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 to localize in Russia and to comply with Russian regulations. But, but sanctions have been relatively few. Again, we're now, again, to use that dreadful cliche, we're in uncharted territory. We don't know what the government will, will do. We, we know, of course, the restrictions have been put in place with FX, uh, effectively capital controls, but not being called capital controls. Uh, and, and we don't know what else will, 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 will come uh, as yet. Uh, and and I, would, I would caution everybody not to pay too much attention to what comes out of Parliament or, or, or some of these talking heads, because we've had this for seven years where... You know, somebody will stand up in Parliament and say, we're introducing a bill, you know, banning foreign companies in this business or that business, etc. And it gets lots of headlines, but it never actually gets put into law. Uh, we, the, the, I guess the main piece of legislation, apart from the ban on food, is one that actually makes it illegal for uh, Russian or anybody in Russia to comply with Western sanctions to the detriment of the Russian economy. And that is a law. So, you know, if you, refu- if you refuse to perhaps provide a service to, uh, say, Mr. Friedman, who's been, who's been uh, sanctioned this week, then you are technically breaking the law. Uh, so you have to be wary of that. Uh, I'm not aware of any, any enforcement of any of these actions, but, but now clearly the whole sanctions footprint or the number of people and entities are sanctioned is considerably bigger. So that law may now become a lot more relevant for companies working in Russia because they're, they now have a larger number of people and enterprises that they have to be wary of and simply can't work with because of these extended sanctions. But in terms of straight countermeasures, as I say, the government has always uh, tried to avoid that because it makes it more difficult for foreign companies to work in Russia. And they've said that time and time again. This time around, again, I guess it depends on what happens next with, with, with what's going on in Ukraine. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Becca, let's turn to you. Countermeasures, to what extent do you see financial services institutions who you're advising and supporting being concerned by what the Russians may or may not introduce? Countermeasures in the financial services sector, we're already seeing very overt statements coming out of those banks that do have exposure to Russia. So I think it's really striking. Today, we saw Societe Generale come out and admit that they they believe and they are planning for the worst case scenario that their Russian uh, base subsidiary could be um, sort of effectively removed from their control by the Russian state and actually as a countermeasure they are preparing that they could lose all of their assets and capital on balance within that entity within Russia and are modeling their capital requirements to deal with that exposure in that scenario and I think you know if we extend that to other uh, European entities that have significant subsidiaries with exposure to Russia, like Unicredit, um, you could see other banks preparing for that. I mean, the flip side is we've already seen two Russian subsidiaries of, or two European subsidiaries of Russian banks within the EU uh, collapse, one going through um, an insolvency and recovery procedure, and one effectively being sold, removed out of the group for operation. And so I think that the flip side of that from an EU financial service perspective is they expect you know, those those Russian entities to, to be lost at this point if countermeasures are brought forward. And certainly from a financial markets perspective, that is where the, the very real threat sits and, and firms are viewing it as likely. So effectively nationalising French, Italian banks in Russia, you think is now something that is a possibility? Certainly the institutions themselves are, are being required to plan those scenarios by the central authorities and the central banks. And it does look... Chris, do you think, that's a, do you think there's a chance that happens? Yeah, I was going to say, because uh, I know my colleague uh, Tom Adsed's on this call as well, and this is something that he always talks about, is, is of course, the, one of the other reasons I should have mentioned why Russia is always wary of damaging counter-sanctions and damaging foreign businesses, of course, because these are effectively Russian companies. They employ large numbers of Russians. They pay the Russian tax and they're part of the economy. So it's another reason why maybe even politically they'd like to say we We'd like to, you know, sanction this company. But then if you find out they're employing 10,000 people and they're important in some region, you know, you're not going to do it. So, you know, uh, th- th- there is that factor. Uh, financial services is different because, you know, maybe that's not such a big employer and the Russian financial uh, bank, the banks are a lot more dominant. So, in fact, 
you know, again, the, the footprint of international financial organizations in Russia is relatively small. Uh, again, probably a function of the accumulation of sanctions where they've all decided it's just easier not to be in Russia uh, or, or, or you know, frankly, the, uh, the fairly aggressive expansion of Russian financial institutions. Of course, think Sparebank uh, have grown very, very large and really haven't left much space for foreign competition anyway. So uh, really, the, 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 the number of foreign banks in Russia is, is, is relatively few. Uh, they, with a few exceptions, they tend to be there to service their, you know, their, their clients, whether they're American clients or UK or French clients, rather than, you know, the Russian market. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, but I would agree that if we do see any san- counter sanctions coming out of government, it will be at the financial services sector. There you kind of, if I put it this way, this is where the Russian government will get a bigger bang for its buck because it tends to be more global headlines than shutting down a soap manufacturer, for example. And it's also the least painful for the Russian economy because they're not that big uh, and, and uh, that whatever businesses foreign financial institutions have in, in, in Russia could easily be absorbed by one of the big Russian institutions at this stage. There, there's nothing that I can think of, apart from greatly inconveniencing me because my bank is Raiffeisen and it's next to the office. So I sincerely hope that they remain for purely selfish reasons. But really, the impact on the broader economy would not be much, but it would be a big, powerful statement by the state to do it. Uh, and, and you're right. This is where we will see counter sanctions if they are coming. Right. Thanks, uh, Chris. Now, I'd like, we had a question here, which I was going to pick up on, was, which is looking at crypto. This is an area, Becca, that you've done quite a lot of work in the last couple of months. It's clearly an area where there is the possibility of, of some institutions, corporates, investors being seen to avoid some of the new regimes with, which are being established. This is also an area where if we look back to 2014, cryptocurrencies were nothing like as popular and as well known as they were now today in 2022. So, Becca, just just kind of describe how you see the kind of crypto environment responding to the crisis and where you see the more responsible platforms seeking to adapt to reflect uh, uh, the, the changing political and regulatory reality. Absolutely. So I think in the first instance, there was a, a lot of assumptions made very early on that, that crypto could be used to, to evade sanctions. I think it's, you know, despite the rapid rise in crypto markets, I think it's worth putting in context. Wholesale sanction evasion through the, the crypto markets isn't credible in the sense of it's not possible to push billions through these markets. You can push tens of millions, maybe slightly more through these markets, but realistically, they're not built for scale. It would be too easy to identify, to, to track and address, because ultimately you would still be able to look at the ledger of activities and determine what was happening within crypto trades. But there is definitely a conversation being had right now about are these um, ways in which assets can be used to aid individuals to evade sanctions or certainly individuals to, to access sort of uh, foreign investment trades money, particularly with restrictions in place. And what we're seeing is that it's the crypto industry for the first time having to determine its approach to how it's going to grapple with this outside kind of specific crypto-based sanctions and entities. And I think um, what we've seen today is a sort of a sort of rolling number of announcements and kind of an alignment of position, I think, by this morning, whereby you know, we've had clarity from, from crypto exchanges at the start of this week that, you know, they obviously won't allow sanctioned entities or sanctioned individuals to use their services and where they do, where we have exchanges that aren't taking verification, ID, mail, customer checks, they will seek to, to not enable transactions in this space. That's now been extended by most of the major exchanges to know that they won't settle trades for and um, which have been made by debit cards and credit cards that have been issued by sanctions banks and i think this goes to what we're starting to see now within russia which is obviously um the the uh, the cards of sanctioned entities that are operated by visa mastercard um things like google pay and apple pay not working now necessarily and a very clear statement from most major crypto exchanges that they won't start processing these cards um, we're also hearing a suggestion from the EU and the US now that you know they are considering whether further measures are needed, whether crypto-specific vaccination is something that should be considered next week. It's, it's clear there's no firm agreement, but there are definitely conversations around the table now on what that could look like and how that would work. But I think to put that in context, if you look at one of the major exchanges um, like Binance, you know, we were looking at ruble to um, Bitcoin um, daily trades being around 11 million prior to the start of this, they've now up to around 40 million per day. So we're, you know, it's a book. we're not seeing the numbers rocket out beyond sort of greens of what is possible or credible. So I think at the moment there is a, a comfort within the regulatory and, and sort of political community that this can be managed. 
but also a desire to see the, the more experienced global trades and exchanges to start operating within the sanctions framework and certainly no suggestion from those yet that they're willing to operate outside it. Right, thanks Becca. I just wanted to pick up on something that Chris said. So Chris's colleague Tom Ann said, said here in the chat specifically on banks, I haven't seen any suggestions of nationalisation. There are strong indications of default on debts and also about not allowing lease planes to be returned to their owners. There was a statement yesterday that they were trying to help those companies that chose to stay in Russia. Interesting point below that from Nick Lakin. He said, I challenge Chris's optimism about companies with large employees not acting. See what IKEA, etc. have announced today. Also heard a rumour that the French government gathered all French-Russian French businesses investors yesterday and told them to exit their Russian operations. Total, Merlin, Danone and others. Chris, okay, what, what would be the impact of that, do you think, Chris, of, of, of the French, the Germans, um, doing a version of what the British government told BP to do, relatively straightforward to BP, they just had to sell an asset, albeit, albeit at a huge loss. Sure. Much harder for French, you know, for French supermarket chains or for German auto businesses. Okay, let me first actually just correct. Um, I didn't say that, uh, you know, uh, large companies... Or, or companies with large employees wouldn't act. No, that, that's not what I said. What I said was that uh, we did do not think that you know that the Russian government would look to hurt those businesses, would look to ban those businesses uh, because they are a big part of the Russian economy. I was speaking purely from the what, what Russian government may do, not what those companies themselves may decide. Uh, and obviously, we uh, have seen you know a, a, a lengthening list of international companies who are making announcements either about suspending their business in Russia or, you know, making clear that they're openly thinking about it. Um, you know, very few have actually said we're done and we're leaving. Uh, obviously, BP was the first one and uh, then then others, uh, Equinor uh, and Shell uh, followed. But since then, the, the statements from companies have all been, you know, either about suspending their activities or they are, uh, you know, reconsidering their position in Russia. They're reviewing their Russian operations. Uh, and look, the way I interpret this is basically saying, well, first of all, some companies, if they're manufacturing in Russia, have no choice but to suspend their activities because they're not going to get the spare parts or they're not going to be able to, you know, be serviced or they can't pay their, their bills or, or can't get paid for it. Or there's a lot more difficult. So that's just practical a lot of them will have to suspend. So the auto assembly companies, I think in particular, uh, they have no choice because they will not be able to import the electronics that go into assembling a car. Um, but then, you know, we, we started off talking about reputational risk. You know, again, companies clearly have to be very sensitive to what's what's happening in Ukraine, the war. Uh, you know, we only have to look at BBC, CNN or whatever to see how that is being uh, relayed. Uh, and absolutely, I think every single comp major company in the world has to respond to that and, and say that they're reviewing their contacts in Russia, they're reviewing their business in Russia. Uh, and uh, But my interpretation is they're basically waiting to see what happens next. Now, again, one does not want, either we want to be excessively pessimistic, although that's the way you probably would lead, or in any way optimistic. Uh, but my sense is that companies are buying time, will wait to see what happens next. If we all hope there is some sort of a you know, a peace deal which sees Russian forces reduce or withdraw, then it'll be a lot easier for those companies to stay and, and just to ride it out. If on the other hand, the, the war, uh, the number of casualties and, and what happens gets worse and worse and worse, then I guess they'll be under a lot more pressure simply to shut their doors and take their names off the, off, off, off the door outside and, and, uh, and leave. So I think it really does, for a lot of these Mess, uh, it, statements we've had so far. When you look at the wording, you know it, they're really the word suspension, review. Uh, it, it, it's all over the place. Rather than we're done and we're never coming back. And then you know we did have that statement from the the uh, Russian Prime Minister Mishustin uh, a couple of days ago. It's been on the government website. Where on the one hand he said the government is banning the sale of all assets. So if you're a foreign owner, you can't sell anyway uh, at the, for, for now. And again, he's buying time to sit, hold, and see what happens next. But he also said that, of course, the Russian government wants to keep foreign companies uh, in Russia, does not want them to leave. And he made a, I wouldn't say it's a threat, but he just made a statement saying that it's a lot easier to leave than it is to come back. So in other words, if you're a big company doing well in Russia and you leave now, say because of reputational risk, 
And in a couple of years' time, you want to come back, but you may not be able to. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's kind of this sort of tit for tat taking taking place. But uh, bottom line is, companies are clearly covering themselves. Uh, they will leave if the situation deteriorates and Russia becomes even more toxic. But clearly, they're hoping that there will be some sort of a, a settlement where things can calm and therefore they can ride it out, however long it takes, whether it's three months, six months, I, I, whatever, and then kind of resume business in, in Russia. Uh, and the other point to make, sorry, I don't don't want to be dis- too dis- dis- disconnected here, but they're kind of relevant points, is that quite a number of businesses with foreign names on the door are actually owned by Russians anyway. Uh, for example, it's come up in the papers a couple of days ago, why is McDonald's there with their big yellow signs? But, you know, as Tom points out, McDonald's in Russia is owned by a Chechen company, and they're not going to turn the lights out. So, you know, it's a very complicated situation. It's not just the same as you can't just say, Foreign companies should leave now uh, and and never come back. They, they can't. Uh, you know, they, they can make a statement of intent, which a lot of them have, a lot of it conditional. They're waiting to see what happens next. Because look, let's face it, so much has changed so rapidly since you know Monday of last week, since the twenty first, since that Security Council meeting um, in in Russia, uh, and and we simply don't know what's going to change over the next week. And nor does companies. Uh, but you know we. Then we'll start to see see the reaction from government and companies only when the situation starts to become clearer and is not deteriorating at this rapid pace we're seeing today. Thanks, Chris. Becca, let's pick up on a point that Chris was making there about, about, in fact, McDonald's, which is a good example. So McDonald's operates under a kind of franchise agreement in Moscow and is intending to do so. But one of the key questions that we've been getting from clients over the course of the last seven days is, is it acceptable to have Russian content in your supply chain? Is it acceptable to be able to do business in Russia, even if you can, in light of the terrible events in Ukraine? So from the point of view of the reputation of these global corporates, where do you think they're going to end up, Rebecca? Are they going to err on the side of caution and seek to withdraw because they don't want to uh, um, uh, put themselves in reputational harm, whether it's from as you've seen, for example, from the Ukrainian uh, digital minister, who's been very vocally attacking Facebook and uh, Google and others? Or do you think that people will be keeping their heads down because they still want to source the potatoes that they might be able to access from Russia or whatever it is that they're currently relying on? Um, so I think I think corporates in many ways are taking a maximalist approach in terms of how they manage the reputation risk. Um, and I think what's been surprising over the last few days is the pace at which we're seeing corporates act. In many ways, they're still in crisis mode from COVID. They've got their command structures still up. They're highly alive to, to the reputational cost of, of not being proactive or not being quick off the mark in terms of some of the commitments. And I think that is sort of that is seeping through into how they respond to events right now. And I think that coupled with they are very alive to the to the social media and the online debate going on that is constant and sort of in real time to every development within Ukraine and, and how they are perceived that we're sort of seeing corporates sort of move in a much swifter way than we would have done five, ten years ago around things that I don't want to say simpler, but less complicated to remove issues. So removing goods and services from sale in Russia or response of tech and, and online platforms in terms of re- removing advertising revenues, platforms that could be misused or, or used by sort of uh, media outlets, but also you know pushing back on abiding by Russian regulation and rules. We've seen kind of corporates um, responding in a very similar way to Netflix, which is we will continue to provide content, but we're no longer going to accept the implementation of these rules and measures. But also proactively going one step further and offering support for Ukraine in forms of aid, multi-million pound commitments, standing up their own crisis response frameworks to provide support in Ukraine. And I think corporates felt like those were the announcements they could make that sort of they could do quickly. They didn't rely on being able to sell assets or kind of start to interrogate or investigate their supply chains. But I do think that is the question we're seeing corporates grapple with now. And even if there is a a de-escalation in events, from a reputation perspective, I think there are a large number of US, European, UK businesses that feel it's very difficult to continue um, business operations that would be viewed very publicly. And while we've been on this call, you know, we've seen a number of kind of UK entities announce that they'll be removing certain products from their sale lines and from their supply chains because they're starting to feel that pressure grow as events continue and the kind of the, the scale of kind of invasion expands in a sense that public pressure on them is only going to grow. I do think the other question we're seeing a lot of 
businesses talk to us about is actually the implications for them on their own workforce. Sort of, so their employees in Russia, but also their Russian employees globally and their Ukrainian employees. And actually, how do they communicate and manage um, that those risks and those consequences? So, you know, we've been talking to a number of corporates about their own Russian employees who may face kind of um, account freezes um, for no other reason than these very broad brush measures being put in place and we don't yet have the detail on the UK's decision to kind of cap all accounts at 50,000 and whether that may apply to dual nationals and I think for a lot of businesses how they communicate to their own workforce and try and answer some of these unanswered questions and areas of uncertainty is, is quite key as well. Yes. Right, thank you, Becca. Uh, Chris, let's turn back to you. Um, let's look at the bigger picture before we wrap up. Um, crudely, the this crisis seems to be a balance between two things. To what extent can the Ukrainian people suffer the terrible pain which is being imposed on them by the Russian military compared to the extent to which the Russian economy and the Russian people can bear the economic pain which is being imposed um, uh, upon them by the, inter the international community? And the question is, to be blunt and crude, who is going to endure uh, the most pain for the longest and who is going to crack first? Do you agree with that? Um, way that I've described it, and who would you think is going to crack first? Well, look, it's, uh, <clears throat> I, I think the, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, or, or whatever, but what I can see, you know, uh, in Moscow and looking at the international news, and do bear in mind that there isn't, you know, there, there, there is no censorship of the internet in Russia, so people can, you know, watch BBC, they can, they can, plug into this broadcast, they can, you know, they're basically people can see the news the same as everybody else. Uh, and Russians are very uh, proactive users of the internet, one of the highest per capita daily internet accesses in, in the world. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, but they're, it's probably more divided, older people, uh, pensioners, people who work for the state, different generations still look at mainstream TV and they get the state message, uh, etc. And they generally support President Putin and support Russia and they believe the story. But then the younger generation and maybe professional class or those who, who are born after the Soviet Union, they tend to use the internet more and, and, and therefore different set of influences. So it's just important to bear that in mind. It's not a case that, you know, it's not North Korea where, you know, people have only access to what the state tells them, and that's it. This is not the case in Russia. People are very well aware of, of, of what happened, particularly in the cities and, and young, younger people. So do bear in that in mind, and that will make a difference. To answer your question, well, my just look, it's just my pure personal opinion, and I'm sure everybody has one. But from what I can see coming out of Ukraine is an enormous amount of determination. Uh, I wouldn't say stubbornness because that's not a good word to use in, in, this, in, a, in a war, but definitely determination. Uh, the level of support that Ukraine is getting from the rest of the world in terms of accepting you know, refugees, putting in supplies, whether it's military or otherwise, is growing by the day. Uh, you know, the, the, the financial and moral and political support that the people in Ukraine are getting and are, are aware of. Basically, I, I would think the Ukrainian people will not blink under any circumstances. So uh, I think we can forget about that. The idea that they would just yield to the pressure and put out a white flag, I would say zero chance. Uh, on the other side, Russian people will get more angry and more frustrated because I mentioned particularly that segment of the population I mentioned, the you know kind of younger, early, you know, I'm say middle class, I'm not even sure what that is anymore, but people are in their 30s, perhaps maybe in 40s, they've got families they're used to a certain lifestyle, traveling on holidays, buying foreign goods, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, various uh, big sporting events, etc. You know, we're having a normal life. And now suddenly that's going to close. And, you know, it's not the same as, you know, having to hide in a bomb shelter because you might get killed. But it's still, you know, on a practical level, people will still get very angry about this and, and, uh, frustrated that's you know they're not able to live the same life as they had before and I would say that's where the pressure will come if you, if you had to say and it's clearly never as simplistic as either are but if you were to say to me this is not going to end until one of those two blinks I would say it'll be the Russian person who got so fed up with the you know the, their, the way their life has been deteriorated and been changed because of political actions that they do not agree with whatsoever um, that's where the change will come that I, I would say, go so far as to say that when history is, is written at some point, again, in a cliche, uh, this, will, this event now could very well be identified at the point by which the kind of social political stability that we've had in Russia for the last 22 years will start to change. How quickly it'll change, 
I have absolutely no idea. I mean, it would take a very brave person to stand up at the back of a lorry in central Moscow tonight and call for people to protest. Nobody's going to do that. There's no Vakil Havel. There's no Lech Valenza. Um, but how it'll change, I don't know over what period, but I think people's attitude is already starting to change. And the more these sanctions impact them, like coming up to May, it's a big holiday period in, in Russia. They, you know, they, they might st still be able to travel to the Middle East and to Turkey, but will their credit cards work? Will their debit cards work? Again, lifestyles are, 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 are about to be massively impacted and people will not like that for a reason that they don't agree with. So simple question is the Ukrainians will never blink. And, and with the sort of support they're getting from the international community, community they, why would they? Uh, the Russian side, no, I think there's big question marks there. The more the sanctions hit ordinary people, we've already seen a number of oligarchs most unusually being publicly critical of the government, Mr. Friedman, Mr. Jerry Pasco, and others. Uh, never saw that before. Other people in telegraph cha telegram channels where, they, of course, they have anonymity, but are also a lot more kind of critical of, of government. And we know some of these channels are from government sources. So it's changing. And, and this will change things, but how quickly and how, I don't know, in Russia, we, we have to wait to see. It depends on what, what happens next. But anyway, sorry, I hope that answers your question, at that least for the context. That, Chris, that, that does, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you to you and thank you to Becca for participating um, today. It's been a fascinating call. Thank you also for everyone that posted so many questions. We've never had, I think, such an active chat. Um, I would encourage all of you uh, to keep in touch with uh, myself, Becca, uh, Chris. I'll be following up and writing with everyone to get all of our contact details. The Global Council team and the Macro Advisory team are very much around to support you on these uh, uh, challenges. Um, what I would also like to say, and I perhaps should have made this clearer last week, is that whilst clearly um, the war in uh, uh, Ukraine is a is a political uh, crisis, an economic crisis, a financial crisis, uh, and one which we are following on behalf of our clients. It's also, let me say, a shocking, uh, a truly shocking event, the most shocking in my lifetime. And as someone who has lived uh, and worked uh, and and uh, uh, in Russia and loves Russia, I'm as horrified as anyone. So we absolutely take the seriousness of what's happening uh, with great gravity. It's uh, truly shocking. We are appalled by it, but we also want to do what we can to guys and support our clients. So we'll, we, we will continue to do that. I wish you all the best. Uh, Chris in Moscow, please stay safe. Uh, thank you again for your time. And we'll see you all soon. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.